Welcome to the world according to Boyer, where we bring top investors, best-selling authors, and business leaders to show you the smartest ways to uncover value in the stock market. I am your host, Jonathan Boyer. Today's very special guest is Sir Martin Franklin, whose business career dates back to the 1980s, where at the age of 24, Martin and his father took control of DRG, where he became CEO of a company with over 13,000 employees and was tasked with the job of breaking up the conglomerate. In the early 90s, he pivoted to an investment style where he wanted to build companies and purchase a small chain of eye care stores that was merged into a company called Benson, where he completed a successful roll-up of the optical industry, earning his initial investors more than a 23-fold return on their investments when he sold the company in 1996. Martin is probably best known for his success at Jarden Corp, where through a series of successful M&A transactions, he built an empire he sold to Newell in 2016. For the 15 years Martin was chairman of Jarden, his investors earned a compounded annual return of well over 30%. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So before we discuss your you know, truly remarkable career, I just wanted to briefly talk about your love of extreme sports. You completed the Badwater Ultra Marathon in 41 hours and 29 minutes, five hours ahead of your goal time. The race, I believe, covers uh, 135 miles starting in Death Valley in July. And I mean this in the most respectful way possible. What were you thinking? <laughs> to get to the stage of wanting to do Badwater was a, you know, was a progression, a journey of going on to do more and more extreme things. And then yeah, I met an individual, a fellow called Vito Biala, who uh, owned a brand called Zoot Sports, which I ended up partnering with him on, who said, you know, I could take you to a place where very few people have ever been in terms of, you know, taking athletics to the extreme. And I was intrigued. So then he explained to me what this race was. And I said, you've got to be crazy. No one does that. And he said, no, no, but there are 90 people a year who do it and or at least who try to do it. And I just decided that's what I wanted to do. It was instinctive. And I just liked the idea that you could do something that wasn't, was almost a spiritual journey. It's beyond athletic because it's all about a mental discipline. And that really appealed to me. So uh, that's why I decided to take it on. Do you think any of the qualities, especially the, the mental discipline that makes someone able to do these super endurance challenges translates to business success? Yes, I do. I think mental discipline is you know fundamental in business and i think that the journey i could tell you from personal experience this journey it was as spiritual as it was athletic and you know giving one time for, to think and learning how to that you really can push to another level and i think there's some relevance that to one's you know business life so you know i do think it's quirky i mean i will be the first to admit that i always think that a lot of the ultra people that I know are slightly strange. I don't think of myself as slightly strange. But then again, uh, who knows? Probably other people perceive me a different way. I read an article, and I think it's great. Your son, Robbie, you know, kind of followed you into the love of extreme sports. And, you know, the two of you completed uh, the St. Croix half Ironman triathlon together. Robbie was 16 at the time. As a father, what was that like? I think of all the races I've done, the two most enjoyable races I had were the two half Ironmans I did with two of my, I have three sons and a daughter, but two of my sons did these races each at 16. One uh, did, say, Robbie did St. Croix and uh, my son Mikey did one in uh, Sholo, called the Sholo, Arizona. 
uh, half Ironman. Yes, those were the two most enjoyable races I, I, I could have had. They are good athletes, great athletes. They didn't choose to pursue what I pursued. But the truth is I picked up doing extreme sports in my 30s. I played soccer till I was about 32. So, you know, they may, they may yet decide to do that. That was something that grabbed me later on in life. It's really not for the young. They prefer to play, you know, go skiing, play tennis and play basketball. I guess let's shift gears to your career. And, you know, interestingly, you, you started at Rothschild, where you were the youngest vice president in the firm's history. And then you started working for your father, who was the former partner of James Goldsmith. What was it like working with your dad? I loved working with my dad. He uh, I was probably one of those few sons that sort of regretted uh, my father retiring. But, you know, I was the youngest of six. So for me, it was a bit of a catch-up opportunity to spend a lot of time with my father. So uh, I got to see another side of him as I partnered with him. And it was a great experience. One I'll never forget. My father's 94. I'm very thankful for those years that I had to be under him. And he, you know, he taught me a lot, particularly how to treat people and what priorities were and never to take oneself too seriously or never to believe that just because you had some success made you any better than anybody else. Those were things I learned from him. He had an interesting style, and I think it was a style of the time of breaking up companies, and it worked quite well in, in the 80s, and it seemed like a perfect time to execute such a strategy, especially after all the excessive conglomerate building in the 60s. You know, they made corporations bloated and efficient. You think if he was working in the 90s or, or today, he would have done things differently? I think the reality is my father was a banker. That was his real uh, background. And he started, he got to know Jimmy Goldsmith because he was his banker at the time. And I think that what they did was, as you said, important for the time. And I think these things do go in cycles and based on economic need. And because of the inefficiencies that were created by the conglomerations that were made in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s, having some a catalyst like my father and Jimmy was essential for industry. They, were, they served an important role. But it became sort of irrelevant, you know, at some point because the efficiencies had been found and the market had adjusted. And that was really when they retired. And I think that today people are doing similar, if you like, catalytic things, but are doing them in a very different way, but much more appropriate for the times today. You always have to have some engine there in order to drive towards efficiency and making sure that inefficiencies don't exist for very long in, a, uh, in any place in the capitalist system. So what are some of the catalytic trends that you think are you know, worth exploring today? Well, I mean, I think the thing, you have to look at the things that have been happening. First of all, you go back to the activists. So if you like the takeover artists and the conglomerators of yesteryear are the activist investors of today. So they're trying to push companies to find initiatives within themselves rather than making takeover attempts and asking them to bust them up, right? Some of that's because of the laws of change, and some of it's because it's really a better way to go because, in a way, you're bringing all those benefits to all shareholders as opposed to just the buyer. I think the second, if you like, trend today, and you know, I've been a part of that, is towards bringing companies back to the public markets. And you see all of these SPACs. They are, if you like, the LBOs of t- in today's environment, they've become quite a trend. People, people you, you know, go into market using equity for doing 
transactions that in some other scenarios might have been private equity deals. You know, that's just, I guess, a couple of examples of things that are going on. But I think it keeps on shifting over time. And I'm sure that in 10 years time, there'll be something else. One of the things in the activist playbook is, you know, lever up the balance sheet, buy back a lot of shares. And, you know, it's great for a short term potential pop in the stock. But, you know, it's apropos today's the day that, you know, Sumner Redstone passed away, you know, Viacom is a perfect example of, you know, you can spend a ton of money buying back stock or CBS Viacom, but if you don't invest in content or whatever you're building, you're, you're not going to have a good long-term result. I mean, do you have any views on share buybacks? Yeah, I'm a believer in share buybacks when it's appropriate. And I think the mistake that a lot of companies have made is they're not very good at it. I mean, you take a company like Teledyne over the years, you know, maybe in the book Outliers, you'll see a number of examples. The great thing about being a public company is if you're a good capital allocator, you know when it's a good time to issue shares, and you know when it's a good time to buy them back. When you go back and look at Jardin's history, we bought companies with debt, periods of time where we bought shares back, and we had periods of time when we issued shares. The, the reason we had a 34% compound return for investors over 15 years was because, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, we timed those things correctly. I think just when activists come in and their only playbook is, I think you should lever up and buy a bunch of shares back, no matter what the price, I completely agree that that's not a good thing to do. And if, particularly if it sacrifices necessary investments in the future of the company. I think any you know management team that leverages up the company to the sacrifice of investments they need to make isn't doing their job. I know that you know I'm in the middle of a buyback for Nomad Foods today, in which a company in which I'm sort of the founder and co-chairman, the largest frozen food company in Europe, and we're returning capital to investors for specific reasons, but to the detriment of any acquisition opportunities we have, investments that are going to be made in our own business from a marketing support or anything else for the future of the business. So there are times to do it. I think to say that they should, you know, buybacks should never be done is a big mistake. In fact, it surprises me sometimes, you know, with the politicians starting to talk about things like that. What people should do is make the right decisions for their companies. It's not a question of uh, whether it's sort of black and white, whether one thing's a good idea or a bad idea. And to be clear, I think in certain instances, you know, buybacks are quite appropriate and, you know, Boyer Asset Management and you know our research service, we we do a lot of the John Malone companies, and he's a big believer in them and does a, a good, you know, fairly good job mm-hmm. of it. So there are certain, and he was in you know the Outsider book as well, I believe. So I mean, are there any other executives that you think have, have done a good job with this? Yeah, I think the Rails brothers who built uh, Danaha, I think they would be a poster child example of good capital allocators and understanding how to build a business. Yeah. And they, they're doing it a second time, I believe, with Colfax. That's correct. I mean, you know, people who understand how to do these things, the skill set is transportable to any industry. Look, I, not to toot my own horn, but I've had success in multiple different sectors, but I'm following the same playbook and the same disciplines. It doesn't, you know, because they are agnostic to what particular industry you're in. I mean, your first big success was was actually in, in the optical business. It, it was in the early 90s and you, you started rolling them up. You know, out of all the areas you could have invested in, what attracted you to the eyes? <laughs> I have to confess, I'd be lying if I told you it was because I did some huge industry analysis at the time. 
I was looking to do something when my father had retired and somebody came along and offered me 11 optical shops and a company that looked to me when I looked at the numbers that it was going to go bankrupt. And I saw an opportunity to buy a very small business, get an opportunity to get my foot in the door and have hopefully the opportunity to buy the rest of it went into financial difficulty. And like so many things, you know, the old saying, 80% of success is showing up. I put myself in an industry where I suddenly realized that my thesis was probably a poor one, but I liked the business I was in. So I, I had called in all the suppliers to my stores. And what I learned when I you know, really sat down and talked to them is the people that make frames just made frames. The guys who made lenses made lenses. The guys that made contacts, you know, distributed contacts. And it, it was a very, <laughs> pardon the pun, but a very myopic <laughs> business. People were, were focused on very narrow things. And that gave me the idea of creating another integrated eye care products company. The problem I had at the beginning was I was pretty poor, so I didn't have a lot of money. And I had to figure out how to go from buying distressed businesses to buying healthier ones that will go in the platform. And I didn't know it at the time, but that's, that's really what I was doing. And you know, migrated quite quickly, actually, from being a retailer to being a distributor and manufacturer of, of optical products. Each acquisition got progressively better in terms of quality of business until, uh, you know, we had built the largest lab system in, in the United States. And Essilor, the largest lens maker in the world, figured we'd built a big enough infrastructure to offer a very generous price to buy it, which is when we sold it. And you accomplished this in your late 20s, early 30s, correct? Yes. I think I started it. I was about 27, 26, 27. And I sold it when I was about 30 or 31. <laughs> Not bad for the early 30s. <laughs> it's funny, I, growing up, you know, my father started the business and you know, one of his big earlier successes was a company called US Shoe, not because he liked the, the business, but they own lens crafters. I remember it well. Yeah. And he says probably one of the worst run public companies ever. If I remember, that was also a company the Rails brothers in their early days went off to try to buy. Yeah, a lot of people did, and uh, they finally uh, sold to Luxottica. Took a lot of patience. <laughs> yep, I remember. I hope you've been enjoying the interview with Martin Franklin. To be sure to never miss another World According to Boyer podcast, please follow us on Twitter at Boyer Value. Now back to the show. As I mentioned earlier, you're probably best known for Jarden, you know, and you compounded at over 30% per year for 15 years. And you did it by basically forcing your way onto the board of a former Ballcork spin out, which was a horribly run company. You know, how did you manage to get yourself on the board? If I ever write a book, that's going to be my favorite chapter because it's, it's a crazy story. Uh, well, it's the craziest story is how I became CEO, but I'll tell it to you. The, I got on the board because I bought 9.9% of the company and they refused to really listen to any of my suggestions where I looked to try to take it private. Then I made a public offer for the company. They rejected that. Because it was a Indianapolis you know, domiciled company, it was very difficult to, if you like, force them to do anything. But in the end, they decided to run a sale process. I was the only bidder. And then when they decided they didn't want to sell to me, they'd rather make peace. They offered me two seats on the board. And Ian Ashkin, who's been my longtime colleague and partner, went on the board with me. 
and that's how I joined the board. So I went to my first board meeting in, I think, I want to say June of 2001. I'd been buying shares from the beginning of 2000. And then the first meeting was an extraordinary meeting. I promised that I would be uh, just a listener and observer in the first meeting. And Ian went to a cricket match. So he left me to the wolves on my own. And I'm sat in this meeting and one of the businesses they owned was called Triangle Plastics. And it was a terrible acquisition that they had made. And EBITDA was supposed to be $14 million. And I'd done due diligence on the company when we were looking at buying it. and knew for a fact that it was probably going to be lucky to make $2 million of EBITDA, which means we'd have a, long, a big P&L loss. And the company was already in financial difficulty. This would have put them in covenant default. So when I went to the first board meeting, the outside director, the lead director, who had never met the president of this division, I told them I thought it was a breach of their fiduciary duties. They'd never met the manager. So it just so happened that my first meeting, that manager was there. So he gives a presentation and he tells the board that he's going to make 12 to 14 million of EBITDA that year. Now, this is, remember, this is June, June of, the, of this year. It's already half the year's already done. I already knew what the numbers were. So we're just sort of, everybody listened. I didn't say a word. And then they were going to move on to the next topic, next subject. Then I put my hand up. I said, look, I'm sorry, but I have to ask a question. He said, okay. So then I started asking questions. He said, well, how, what's your EBITDA year to date? His answer was a million dollars. I said, okay, what's your expected EBITDA or $2 million? What's your expected EBITDA for the month, this month? That I'm going to lose a million dollars. I said, okay. So you're you're telling the board you're going to make, you know, twelve to fourteen million dollars. You're going to do it in the back half, the slowest quarter in this industry, because it's a is the fourth quarter. So you know, I know for a fact you have no chance of making these numbers. Why are you telling the board numbers that you won't know aren't true? Who would ask you to to tell you to stand up in front of this board and effectively lie to them? And he points with his finger to the CEO and he says, he did. <laughs> <laughs> so they've I know it's a long story but it's worthy of telling and and they literally he was the CEO was going to be removed from that day forward and it took them 90 days to basically agree to give me the keys and it was one of those stories where the board did the right thing I joined the board the stock split adjusted was like a dollar 20 and we sold the company on an apples to apples basis at about 60 dollars that's really the Jordan story that's an amazing story that a CEO would tell a subordinate basically to lie to a board uh, that's, that's un- it was unbelievably it was shocking and it sort of played right into everything that i've been trying to explain to this board for a long time which is that they had the wrong people running it and the underlying businesses were good businesses that had opportunity and we exploited that you certainly did and primarily through an M&A strategy and you purchase brands, like, I guess, like Coleman, Mr. Coffee, Playing Cards, Rawlings. You know, what was your acquisition strategy? So I will tell you that I don't think our success was, was just M&A. I think M&A was a good piece of it. But our success was really because we ran the businesses well and we built a great culture. And we really managed to attract the best talent in each of the businesses we were in to those businesses. But our criteria was very consistent across all of our acquisitions. We looked for, for market leaders in, in their respective consumer markets. I mean, obviously, all consumer. We wanted businesses that were defendable, you know, had defensible moats around them. It's really the same strategy I pursue today. We looked for businesses that had good management teams and had generated a lot of free cash flow that we could, you know, buy for a reasonable multiple of those cash flows. That was the strategy. And 
for the 25 or 26 acquisitions we made, there were probably 500 that never, nobody ever saw that we passed on, whether it be for price, culture, strategic fit, or, or whatever. We were very careful to make sure that the, you know, the chemistry inside the company was never, if you like, tainted. Because I think one bad apple can you know, ruin everything. So we were very cautious. Did you take the Buffett hands-off approach with these businesses or did you just, or did you end up taking an active role? I think people who think that Buffett is inactive probably don't get close enough to what he does. I think the reality is, is we have a very similar view that you hire the very best people and then you give them the latitude to perform and the incentives to perform. So that we did. But what we did that was, I think, more important was he gave them tools to be better than they would have ever been able to be on their own. So for example, if we were doing shipping of containers from Asia, all of our shipments were under the same umbrella agreement. So we could take a company who you know, was doing a great job and save them a significant amount of money just by them being under the tent. We did the same thing with insurance, with buying raw materials such as you know, aluminum or aluminum and, and you know, various resins and all those kinds of things. So everything that was in the back of the house, we had the economies of scale, but we gave them the entrepreneurial freedom to build their businesses as they saw fit within the parameters of, if you like, budgets and forecasts that they would present to us on a you know, forward basis. You're a big believer you know, in brands, and you know, that was a big part of your acquisition strategy. How did you figure if a brand was good enough to fit into your portfolio? Was it gut feeling? Did you do consumer surveys? Did you just simply look at cash flow and say, hey, if I can buy this at five times and it's a decent enough brand, let's put it in? Like, How did that work? The answer is depends. Okay. So to give you some examples, I didn't need to do a survey to know that you know, United States playing card that owned 94% of the playing card space in the United States had brand equity. It, that didn't require a survey. But when I bought Food Saver, which was, you know, the, the machine that made a, you know, oxygen barrier bag, I did a very full consulting study because it was a very narrow market. And I wanted to understand what it, was it a fad or was it something that's going to be around for a very long time? And, and by the way, we bought that business because everybody else thought it was a fad. And that business has produced every year substantial profits without, you know, at least in the years I owned it. It went from 25 to over 45 million of EBITDA through the period without missing a beat. So, you know, our thesis was right. And we bought it very cheap because other people were very skeptical that it would have legs. But we did this, the research, the consumer surveys and everything else because we didn't have that. It wasn't obvious. When it's obvious, we don't do work just for the sake of doing work. We use our common sense. There are some things that were obvious and some things that required more study. But when it required more study, we never cut corners. That's, I guess, that, that was one of the things that, that I think we did well. You know, we, we never had surprises when we, after we bought things because we were thorough in our diligence. Would it be fair to say that one of the secrets to your success was making a lot less mistakes than everyone else? Yeah. My, my dad said to me many years ago, he said, you make more money on the deals you don't do than the deals you do. That's why I would be the first to tell you I'm, I wouldn't be a great venture capitalist because I, I don't think I could sleep at night knowing, you know, if I had, if I was doing 10 deals, two are home runs that pay for everything else and, you know, four of them go bust and 
the other ones are mediocre. I just couldn't live with that because for me, I'd be having sleepless nights about the four that were going bust and what we're going to do with the people. And, you know, it's just not my way of thinking. I have very little appetite for living with failures and moving on from them. So, you know, this approach has always been better for me. How important were stores like Walmart to the success of Jarden? I mean, it seems like having good relationships with them was was critical. I don't know what percentage of sales of your products were at Walmart, but having such a concentrated... It started off as 5% and went to 15%. And Amazon went from 1% and was probably 10% by the time we sold the business. And today would probably be 25%. So what I always told people is my job is to make our job and the company's job is to make great products, get them to wherever you want them to go on time in the most efficient way possible and price them fairly. That's our job. I'm agnostic as to whether or not they're sold in a retail store and an e-commerce platform or any other way. It's not to us our, our job. I didn't care if I was selling to Walmart or selling to a different kind of retailer. But our job was to make sure that we were the most efficient in doing it. So they were important. But I think if it wasn't Walmart, it'd have been somebody else because at the end of the day, they're simply conduits to what to consumer purchasing. And uh, our job was to make things that appeal to the consumers and that would drive the demand. I remember with um, sitting with the president of Bed Bath & Beyond who had asked me you know, to, to give him help with his e-commerce strategy and, you know, what's, what are you going to do to me? I know I buy a lot of product from you. What are you going to do to help me with this? And I had to explain to him, I said, as much as I want to be helpful to you, you know, that's not my job. My job is to give you products that your consumers want to buy. You know, how you figure out you're going to deliver to your, to your consumer is really your responsibility. You know, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the ones that adapted to online strategies and saw this coming, were the successful companies. I always reminded my management team is the difference between Blockbuster and Netflix was always staying sharp and adapting. And that's one of the things that Jarden did really well. We never got complacent. We never rested on our laurels. We always adapted. And we tried to be the Netflix of our space, not the Blockbuster. You'd mentioned earlier you know, that uh, Amazon was becoming increasingly important as a few years ago as a percentage of sales. A lot of your portfolio is branded consumables. In today's digital age where Amazon and Costco have such strong private label brands, would it have been harder to have the success you had today? No. Private label is something that if you can't compete with private label, you know, you're not doing your job because private label by definition doesn't evolve because they, you know, what Walmart are not spending the same amount of time as a consumer-driven consumer products producer to innovate. They'll take somebody else's product and they'll figure out a way to make it either the same price or cheaper. But if you continue to innovate and value engineer your products, you should always be able to stay one step ahead of, of private label. So, you know, I competed with private label all the time. And one, one of the things, for example, at Coleman, I mean, Coleman competed at Walmart because it was a Walmart, very much a Walmart brand. But, but Ozark Trails was the, was the, ho the house brand of, of Walmart. And Walmart would be the first to admit that they needed Coleman to be successful to drive revenue at Ozark Trails because people would come in to buy a tent 
you know, they'd see the Coleman product at one price point and maybe they'd go and buy the Ozark Trails product at a different, at a lower price point. And that was fine by Walmart because of how they, you know, saw their margins. But if I wasn't innovating and driving interest in the space, it wasn't going to help them. So we always had a, an earned a place on the shelf because of the products that, uh, you know, that we produced, the innovations that we made. We drove traffic. You know, sometimes that's the right strategy and sometimes that's the wrong one. The, one of the dividing lines for me with Ewell after Jarden was sold to them was when they put Yankee Candle in Walmart, the flagship product. To me, that unwound 50 years of goodwill and careful planning in one cynical move to try to boost revenue for the short term just because management weren't doing a good job. That's how you kill a brand. That was a perfect lead into my my next question. I mean, I know you're no longer involved in Newell today, you know, but after spending so many years building up Jarden, clearly you follow the company and you've been very vocal that they can M&A their way out of the problem. Do you currently think their problems are fixable? I have to be honest, I don't know the new management team and I don't keep that close to tabs on it at this point because that's all I mean, I'm a busy person and I don't spend most much time worrying about I always tell my kids, if you look over your shoulder, all you get is a stiff neck. So I didn't spend too much time worrying about what they've been doing in the last couple of years. But when, you know, the things that were done, I think were hard. Some of the things that were done were hard to unwind. I think, you know, the the Yankee Candle example is a good one in the sense that I just think that getting, once you put your flagship product on the same shelf as something that's, you know, that used to sell it. $39.99 $39.99 and is now selling at $19.99 marked down and it's on a and it's sitting next to a product that looks very similar at $5.99. You know, that's hard to get over. So they've got a lot of work to do. There are a lot of good brands in there still. Some of the best ones got sold. All things can be better. That's the sort of I don't know if they'll be as good as they were. I just don't, you know, that I honestly don't know. What I do know is that I had a very talented group of people on the Jardin side. And most of them left. And that's never a good thing when you lose your talent. Businesses are just people. Absolutely. And you know, you said you always look forward. And I guess, you know, it's currently to talk about what you're doing now. It's, you know, you've been very involved in, in SPACs and you're one of the most successful SPAC investors around. I guess briefly, do you mind explaining to the audience who might not know, you know, what a SPAC is and, and why yours is is different? Sure. These are special purpose acquisition companies. I kind of wish what I did is, wasn't called a SPAC, but I, I started at the very, I was pretty early in this. I used it as a way to diversify my own investments. And I partnered up with a guy called Nicholas Bergruen, and we invested in three vehicles early on. And what we decided to do that was different from anybody at the time was we put a lot of our own money to work in, in these things rather than just being promoters. And, you know, we did them on a scale that, people like Citigroup would underwrite them. So we made them more institutional. And what these vehicles do are they're very simply are pools of cash that are accumulated under one entity for the purposes of buying one company and taking it public and using that equity, that cash to, if you like, fund the equity offering. So is it, think of it like a pre-funded equity offering. And you know the first iteration that I did, first three actually, were like the US model is today, which is you, know, you, you raise a bunch of money, you get actually 20% of the company for free, which is remarkable when you think about it. And then you go and try and find a company and you have to have a shareholder vote and the investors have the right to either ask for their money back or vote in favor of the deal. You know, And if they vote in favor of the deal and they leave their money in, 
you get the transaction done. And the sweetener for the investors is they get a package of warrants, usually a third of the company in warrants. So they have, if you like, optionality on the upside. What I did when we bought uh, Burger King, which was Justice, which was the fourth vehicle I, I raised, and now the subsequent, all the subsequent ones, we basically used it, you, we moved it offshore to the UK. So we had a neutral tax jurisdiction. And we raised it in the UK because the raising of the money costs half as much as it costs in the US. You, you can raise one of the, I think, untold secrets about Europe versus the US is it costs you between 5 and 7% gross spread to raise money in the US. And it costs you between 1% and 2% to do exactly the same thing in exactly the same way, but in the UK. Is there any reason for that? Uh, yeah, greedy bankers. i I don't have a better answer for you i probably litigation and all those other things but the truth is the convention is a higher gross spread in america that's the truth then the second part of it is we don't get any free shares i've never wanted to make money unless my shareholders made money so we get a carry we're very similar to a, a hedge fund that's paid in shares on the upside and but the quid pro quo is we give no vote to investors. It's a board meeting. So these are true committed vehicles. Uh, They're much more certain for the target companies that they'll get a transaction completed. So we are much more competitive with, let's say, a, a private equity firm or a big corporate on the transaction. And also, we're probably the most efficient way somebody can go public. So there's less frictional cost because there's no if you like, upfront founder equity. And at the same time, we can deliver absolute certainty to the target. So my view is, and it's played out this way, that you could do superior, if you want to buy quality companies, you know, profitable companies that have long histories and are established and have choices as to what they're going to do, this is a very viable competitive structure. US SPAC structure, you know, it tends to do more speculative transactions because the non-speculative targets won't deal with US SPACs. So from my perspective, I think you can create better long-term outcomes because you buy better better quality companies. That doesn't mean that a US SPAC can't make shareholders money. All you have to do is look at a company like Nikola, which is almost a public, publicly listed venture venture investment that's flying, you know, because there's no PE to market against or revenue, by the way. That's not a knock on it. And I mean, it could be one of the great companies of the future, but this is a publicly listed venture capital effort. That's what that is. And that's not what I do. I do a very different thing. I buy very fundamental companies that make a lot of money today, made a lot of money for many, many years before, and hopefully will make even more money in the future. It's uh, much more what it's a hunting license to do publicly listed acquisitions without having a foundation company prior to that. As you mentioned, you know, you had Justice Holdings, which ended up taking Burger King public, you know, and it was obviously a, a fantastic success. Bloomberg reported in June, you were thinking of starting another SPAC to invest in consumer business. Are you able to comment on that? Yeah, I actually talked about it this morning on CNBC. I just disclosed it. I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, I've create a vehicle called Harvester with Viking Global, the hedge fund. We're putting up 200 million between us. Then uh, we're going to raise between, we'll probably raise about 750 to a billion dollars in a new vehicle. And it'll be structured very much the same as J2, which was the vehicle we used to buy API Group, which is now, you know, the symbol is APG. It's now a public company. 
that's you know performing very well. The business is doing very well. We have very happy shareholders, and so you know my goal personally is to have a portfolio. Today, I have a portfolio of five large, you know, nine-figure investments in great companies whose capital allocation decisions I have a say in. It's not a dictatorship. It's it's a collaborative process, but I can influence those outcomes. And if I really feel strongly that the wrong decision is being made in something, I have the power to stop it. So from my perspective, that's the way I've wanted to invest my capital for my family over the very long term. And I have no ambition to trade those investments. I don't trade them in and out of them. I'm, you know, This is truly long-term stuff. The new vehicle that you're that you're starting with Viking, is there a specific mandate you're looking at or a certain type of companies? Nope. I have uh, a carte blanche to go any jurisdiction, any type of business. But the truth is I will continue to do exactly what I've done for the last 25 years. I'll stick to the same formula because it's it's worked, you know, in terms of the type of profile of company as we've talked about. But, you know, I tend to hunt more in the consumer and industrial space, as, as I think, as you well know. And but that doesn't preclude looking at new things. And I, I can tell you that Viking Global, one of the reasons for me to partner with them, apart from the fact that it, I just like to be, from an intellectual standpoint, surrounded with intelligent people whose company I enjoy, because that's, I do it because I enjoy it at this point of my life. And you know, I think they have a set of relationships and have made investments in sectors, frankly, I've never been in. But if we find things that are in sectors that they've been in that fit my if you like my criteria, in other words, you know, these highly profitable businesses that have defensible moats and good management and history of cash flows. Where those two places overlap, I may do something in a totally different space from where I've been before, which is kind of exciting to me. Martin, you've been extremely generous with your time and and I wanna thank you for being on the World According to Boyer podcast. I enjoyed learning about your fascinating career and I'm excited to hear about your latest venture and uh, I'm sure it'll be as big of a success as the uh, Justice Holdings one was. Thank you. To be sure you never miss another World According to Boyer episode, please follow us on Twitter at Boyer Value.